the Finance Trends and Disruptions podcast, powered by Stampley. Disruption, innovation, myth versus reality. The truth, featuring the voice of the office of the CFO, Ernie Humphrey. Hello, everyone. I'm Ernie Humphrey, the Vice President of Thought Leadership at Stampley. I'm thrilled to welcome everyone to this episode of the Finance Trends and Disruption podcast. I'm honored and humbled to have Jeff Johnson, the CEO of Smart Care Equipment Solutions, as my guest on our episode, Delivering Success as a Finance Leader in the Next Normal. Jeff has a passion for driving growth and utilizing technology to improve efficiency and enhance customer experience. Prior to joining Smart Care, Jeff was a CFO of Amesbury Truth, where he helped grow the business both organically and through M&A. Additionally, Jeff served as a treasurer and vice president of investor relations for Deluxe Corporation and is a CFO of ABS Global. Jeff is a CPA, which he earned while at KPMG and is a certified treasury professional. He holds an MBA from London Business School and a BA in accounting and MIS from the University of Wisconsin, Eau Claire. Jeff, welcome to the podcast, my friend. Great. Thank you, Ernie. I appreciate that. And I'm CFO at SmartCare, not CEO. But just- uh, Well, I, I thought I'd give you a promotion, right? I appreciate that. That's nice. All right. Yeah. Every company is dealing with finance disruptions. As finance professionals, almost all of us are working from home. Uh, I've known Jeff for many years. Jeff was a treasury leader back in 2018 when we thought we were going through the worst financial crisis ever unfolded. Since then, Jeff has served as a chairman of the board for the AFP and been a successful CFO at several companies, most recently in his new CFO role, only started in January. All of a sudden, this global pandemic unfolds. I can't think of anyone better to have to share insights with me regarding how to deliver success in the midst of a global financial crisis. So, Jeff, let's take a look back as we look forward. Think back to 2008 for a minute or two. What did you learn back then that you feel help you be a little bit more prepared as much as you could have been uh, for what's happened over the past uh, few months as we start to see this pandemic be unleashed across the global economy. Yeah, thanks, Ernie. Well, if you think about 2008, a couple of the things I took away from 2008 was that we're continually dealing with limited information and the importance to be successful is dealing with people effectively as well as having a bias for action. So with that as kind of an overarching framework, my view both in 2008 and, and, and even more so now with this COVID-19 crisis has been to think about the, a, a crisis in kind of three, three phases. You've got this demand destruction phase and you need to act differently with each of these. You've got a demand destruction phase, you have a stabilization phase, and then you've got the recovery phase. And we've just gone through the demand destruction phase here with, uh, with the COVID-19. And uh, you know, events end up moving very quickly and you've got limited information what you've looked at historically is just not relevant anymore. Uh, they, and, and time is of the essence. So you've got to learn to move very quickly with a limited amount of information. You need to, you need to provide headlights for the rest of the organization. And, and then you also need to make sure we've got, we're changing the size and focus of the organization. So it's a, it's, it's quite a, it's, it's quite a, a busy time frame. And then, and unlike 2008, we, this was an, even more compressed than, as you said, we thought we were in a really high-paced, fast environment in 2008, and COVID is, has hit us even faster. And moving out of that destruction phase, you move kind of quickly into stabilization phase. And this is a little bit of where we're sitting right now. And in stabilization is where you spend your time really trying to help your, your business leaders 
um, plan for both recovery and plan for what you're going to look like when you're when you're in the new normal. And this, so this time really can be a very busy time if you're um, a finance professional, if you're a CFO, because you need to now take time around what is that new normal going to look like? You know, what are you going to look like when you emerge? Help the organization to build some muscle memory in that process. And then um, also to help the organization to think through what's that plan? What are you going to look like? Because the plan is so important to have in front of you. So as you emerge, you can bring the costs on not in front of when you need to, but when you need to. So you're not expending your limited resources at the wrong time in the wrong place. And as you know, as Machiavelli, Churchill, Rahm Emanuel all seem to say, uh, a crisis is too good to waste. And with this COVID-19, just like 2008, we don't want to waste this crisis. Yeah, great. Let me kind of dovetail on that a little bit before I shift gears on you a little bit. So one of the things that you said, which I've known you a long time, so I knew you've always had this commitment to relationships. And so one of the big disruptions that I think we're all starting to see is obviously on the accounts receivable side. So those customer relationships are key. And sometimes I feel like CFOs have been a little hesitant to be involved with customer relationships and been looked at as the arbitrator uh, of disputes rather than as a partner. So how have you worked with your uh, CEO to maybe engage your customers and see, you know, is there going to be an AR disruption or have you just a little bit kind of stayed back and what, what, what have you been doing on that to keep your customers engaged and feel like you have them engaged at the right level now? Yeah, well, the first thing we did was we, we revisited all of our, mm. um, our, our accounts receivables because the world has changed back to having to work with limited information. And, you know, we almost had to throw away things like Dun & Bradstreet and historical trends and rethink who do we think the winners and losers were and resort our, um, our risk analysis for our customers. And then what we did is stacked up, uh, you know, personal conversations with each of the, the riskiest, um, all, you know, starting with the riskiest all the way down, talking through wh- what, they, what, what they were seeing, what their business was seeing, uh, where they thought things were going to go. We also then um, provided some options for how to potentially pay for pay pay for um, maybe the receivables they have, whether it's credit card or kind of rethinking it. But we had to really um, go one on one with a re-sorted view to what a receivable looked like. Great. So uh, let me shift gears a little bit on you. And so um, let's talk a little bit more about relationship dynamics. And so. Um, one of the things that was interesting to me, because I'm not really directly connected to to the banks anymore, and I know you're probably in a different position, right, in terms of where you were before, but it may be not only not what have you seen, but what have you heard, right, from your fellow CFOs? Uh, do you think there's different relationship dynamics between company leaders and banks? Did we learn anything from 2008? I get a mixed signal. Um, some people are telling me that the banks are behaving the same. Um, it's 2008. They don't want you to draw on your lines of credit. I'm just kind of curious um, what you've seen, if those dynamics, in what ways would you say you think they're the same? And is there any differences that you've seen thus far? I, I think there are absolutely differences. It's understandable why people would look at the banks and say they're um, struggling. They're, they're having the same approach as uh, they perhaps did in 2008. But what I would say is one of the big differences in 2008 was a financial crisis. Mm-hmm. So when it came to the banks, they were trying to decide whether they were going to live or die. They, they didn't know what their new normal was going to look like. 
so you and as a relationship, you were trying to decide with the banker on the other end, was he going to live or die? So it was it was a very you were on pins and needles on a regular basis. It was it was a very um, dynamic situation. I would argue that this this situation is, is, is very different. The banks are financially um, steady. They're, there's no they're not having a, a significant problem. What they're trying to tease out now is credit risk. And I would argue that in some ways, the banks are, are, are still looking at you, you know, trying to get to yes rather than no. Whereas in 2008, they were definitely trying to go after no, regardless of whether you were good credit or not, because they were just trying to shed any credit they, they could at that stage. Whereas now, I think they'd like to have the right credit. The tricky bit for them is what's the right credit and how do they know it in this constantly evolving situation? Hmm. So let me dovetail on that one just a little bit. And so... Um, would you say that you're seeing uh, more of an appetite now, or maybe it's been both the same in both scenarios on they want more communication from you? And then how do you balance like giving them the story of what's going on, right? Do you communicate more with them, your banks now or less, or how do you communicate with them about what you're seeing, right? So you have like that uh, honest relationship um, with the bank. So what's your, what are your thoughts on, on communicating with your banks if you are going to have some AR disruptions? Well, I, I think I'm always a fan of uh, transparency. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you need to keep an open line of communication with the banks. That said, your bank, their banks are your partner. Um, they're not your AR department. So you need mm-hmm. to you know, right. focus at your internal group where, where they need to. But I think the banks want to understand what's your plan. Where do you where do you see yourself going in in one month, three month, and six months? And that's what they want to understand because they're trying to understand how they fit into that. Are they are they uh, going to be a credit provider? Does it make sense as a credit provider or a treasury provider or whatever else it might be? And so you, I, I I would argue that you see probably more communication today. And the reason I'd say you see more communication today is unlike 2008 when the banks didn't know what to tell you because they didn't know what was happening within their own world. They may not know whether you are a good credit or a bad credit right now, but they're happy to have a conversation and learn more. So I think you're seeing greater levels of communication today than you did in 2008. Okay, great. Um, let me kind of um, shift to something that I know um, I've been talking about a long time. Uh, we call it the evolution of the CFO. And now that you've uh, been a CFO um, for some time, uh, I'm just curious. So back when you first became a CFO, um, what are a few things that you thought as going into your first role it took to be a CFO? And then how has that evolved over your time as a CFO? It certainly evolved a great deal. When I first started as a CFO, I, I saw it more as, I don't know, an, an evolved controller, kind of a souped up controller who really knew the numbers but could provide a few insights. As I have grown and evolved in the role, it's very apparent that the CFO is very different than the controller. You know, the financial context and options are absolutely critical. It's almost an HR role in some ways. One definition I I often tell people is a pragmatic futurist that nudges the organization along while also saying no a lot. Uh, So you've got to be very people oriented. Uh, And so I spent a lot of time, you know, talking, explaining, testing ideas, sharing, uh, someone at one point in life had even told me that the CFO was the loneliest job in the company. Now, I have some CEOs who disagree with that particular <laughs> statement. Mm-hmm. Um, and considering I talk with the CFO, a CEO on a regular basis, it does seem ironic. 
But I, there's a lot of truth to that because, you know, as you're, you're a bit of a gatekeeper for ideas and resources and capital and human resources. And therefore, everyone wants your ear. They want to, to get you, you to buy in on whatever they're investing in, whatever they want to cut in, whatever it might be. And you need to listen to all of that. But at the end, you, you know, you're locked up with the CEO. You need to develop a view for the organization. And, and some people are not going to necessarily um, agree with that. So it's, a, it's, an, it's an interesting position to be in. And they really need to understand the business because in the end, the CEO and the CFO are going to, uh, with bringing the leaders um, along and with the input of the leaders, are going to drive um, to move this organization forward. And by definition, there's going to be some friction in that. Great. Yeah. So you, your, your story kind of, um, at the, especially at the tail end, was just something that I've been um, talking about the last six months or so. Again, what I call the social CFO. So you, I see you've already been successful at that because just in hearing you say that you're the gatekeeper. So people are coming to you, right, with ideas and they, they see that you're a valuable business partner. So many other CFOs that I've talked to over the years, they have a struggle engaging their company leaders and being that trusted advisor and, and being someone that can help them optimize their performance right across the enterprise. So can you share with us a couple things that you found have helped you um, kind of be that overused word, that trusted advisor, what people can do to engage people and get them to come to you, right? And look to you as the gatekeeper and someone that can help them and in, and in doing so help the company. If I had a silver bullet on that one, Ernie, <laughs> I would uh, I would write a book and uh, and retire Make someplace. Yeah, million dollars, right? But but I would say with that is and and of course there is underlying all of it, um, just a hard you know just everyday day to day interactions where you have to prove yourself. But beyond that, what I would say is you you need to develop these relationships um, with the leaders. And if if it's not natural for you to develop the relationships, you, and it's not necessarily for me. You, you got to put some structure around it to make sure you do it, uh, which which whether it is, you know, for my direct reports, I make sure I've got regular one on one meetings with them just to have those conversations actually with my my colleagues. So the other leaders, I don't necessarily have regular one on ones, but I have a mental model in my calendar. I've not talked to them this week that I schedule a time often just as a catch up. And then in that catch up, I'll just share what's been going on. What do I see? And in the midst of that, listen to what they have to say. And that starts to really develop that relationship. And same with, and, and probably the biggest of those is with the CEO. And I will, you know, the, the whole, hey, I'm calling just to catch up. And then you just do a bit of a, a quick download, what you've been doing, where you're going. Sometimes you're, the, the conversations um, evolve into, into longer um, conversations. Sometimes they remain relatively short. But I think Forcing yourself into a framework where you're actually talking with folks and listening to folks proactively is is the first step in that. Okay, great. Um, let's kind of pivot just a little bit and let's talk about another topic that has been on CFO surveys I've seen for a long time. And, and let's talk about talent. So I've talked about this mythical finance dream team. So I've talked about that. And so um, let's let's kind of uh, have a little conversation around talent. So, so, so let's just make it easy. So in, in today's environment, given that we all have to be more agile, uh, what are the, what are the skills um, that you really look for uh, when you fill out your team? And, and as a part of that, what are skills that are most important to you that you think other things you can train up? So what are the things that you think uh, really matter in today's world? 
Yeah, it's funny is you, you frame it up with skills because, you know, clearly anyone you bring on the team, you want to have the right level of skills. But that said, the technical skills, I want them to have technical skills, but I can train holes into a technical skill. That's, that's, that's doable. Here's what I can't train and I really look for. I need someone who's got integrity. I want someone who's got some business acumen. They're flexible to change because COVID-19 is a great example, but I would argue that change is just an ever-present element of our business world. And if I, if my team can't change, then it's, it's just, it's just too hard to move, move with the organization. In this day and age, they do have to be IT savvy, to be quite frank. Mm-hmm. They've got to be, they've got to be self-learners and they've got to be IT savvy. Um, and, and if they can pull all that together and there's a lot of connecting dots with that, uh, then they're going to be successful. And it's more than just the technical skills, those technical skills I can train through some of that mm-hmm. other stuff, the self-learning, the integrity, those, those they have to bring to the table themselves. Yeah, I, I love that. And I know that's part why you're successful, that passion, that passion for learning um, and that integrity. I, I always say learning is a way of life and you think it'd be easy, but most people um, don't get there. So, so let's kind of go. I actually just wrote a blog about, OK, you built your dream team. Now, what do you do? Right. 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 So so that's almost really hard. But so kind of two parts. How do you in general keep your team engaged, engaged and motivated? And how have you changed in what you've had to do in this remote reality that we're in? So interestingly, one of the things I started creating in my career is I would often walk through the office in the morning and just say hi to people, you know, talk about whatever the picture was. Again, I'm not a naturally gregarious person. So it was just a pattern I would do. I would do it. And it was a great way to connect. I could then chat with folks about whatever they're, they're working on or whatever else might be going on or just about the kids or the weather. And when we in it, when it, and that's how I've stayed connected with my teams historically. Uh, clearly, with a remote team, you've got to do a more structured um, call-ins, whether it's a Skype or something along those lines. Well, with the, in the COVID environment, trying to figure out how to do that was was really challenging. One of the couple of things we hit on that actually one that seems to be pretty successful is my my short team, my my direct team. We we've done these fifteen minute coffee calls. We call them in the morning, not exactly at eight, but kind of eight four eight thirty fifteen minutes. If, you, if you're there, you go on. If you're not, you don't have to. And they've been really highly successful at keeping us all kind of knitted together and connected. Sometimes all we talk about is, you know, who had a bad haircut that day. <laughs> and other times we end up talking about some, you know, oh, that's an issue today we need to deal with. Let's talk through that one a little bit or, hey, let's take that one offline and talk further. And that's really allowed the team in my mind to connect uh, in a way that we would have struggled with. And then deeper what I've tried to do, and I feel a little bit less successful in it, but deeper I've been trying to... Uh, just reach out individually to those folks deeper in my organization, just set up a call, say, Hey, I want to set up a 15 minute catch up with you. And, and then we just have a talk about whatever's going on in life. Those have been fine. I think I'm perhaps not as a, not spending as much time on those as I should as well. So I I would argue I should be doing even more of that. Yeah. Great. Just a little um, commentary before we wrap things up with our final question. I think it's really important. The point that you made and I try and communicate this is you have to be authentic. And so I think that's really important that you brought that up. So you say I might not naturally be gregarious and I might not naturally have the gift of gab. I would argue with that. But um, (laughs) but 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 uh, but it's very important that, that people don't force it. Right. And that you're not going to be like, I do stand up comedy and not everyone could do stand up comedy. So if you're not authentic, people 
on the other side are like, you're just trying to be. And the other thing you mentioned was the walk around. And I've heard that just so I used to fear the CFL used to dive under my desk. Right. Mm -hmm. So you also have to do that remotely. Right. So they have to get used to you reaching out. So it's like, oh, my God, Jeff's calling me on Skype. What did I do now? So you have to get them comfortable that it's okay. I'm not here. I'm here to for you to I'm your advocate. Right. I'm your friend. I'm your. Okay, cool. So. So let's imagine that we've got a thousand people listening to this podcast, maybe tens of thousands. I know this is an easy question, but you know, I don't like to ask easy questions. What are three things that you would offer to treasury and finance leaders in any environment to help them deliver value and also inspire their teams? Well, in this environment, I would Mm -hmm. say, number one, don't let a good crisis go to waste. Uh, You know, take advantage of this time to better yourself, to better your team and to better your organization. There is nothing like a good crisis when everything is moving to, to make that change. And then take those learnings and what did you learn? How did you do that? How did you adapt? And when you're not in this crisis environment, how do you apply that? How do you apply that in a normal situation as you move forward? Because we are going to get through this and uh, it's going to be, a, we've, we got through 2008, we got through the dot-com cri- bubble, we got through the savings and loan crisis. We're going to get through this. So if we stay focused on creating a better self and a better organization, that whole self-learning thing, uh, we will be in a better place because all change is an opportunity and we need to seize this opportunity, just like you need to seize all the ones in the future as well. Great. Just just a few things kind of wrap things up. Some things that Jeff really said that resonated uh, with me and I, I take advantage of the crisis. There's opportunities there. Learn from the crisis. You should endeavor to be an authentic social CFO. Invest in the time to get to know right your company leaders and your staff. And you have to be flexible and be willing to engage those professionals. If you really have those foundations, you will be successful in, in any environment that you face. So finally, uh, to Jeff. Jeff, thank you so much very much for uh, being my guest on my podcast today. It was a pleasure, my friend. Ernie, it was a pleasure. Take care. Thank you. Stay safe. Thank you for attending this episode of the Finance Trends and Disruptions podcast. I encourage you to visit www.stampley.com to consume more thought leadership resources to help fuel your career success. Make the rest of your day great, everyone. The truth matters.